think I think the meeting will come to order. <laughs> All right, we'll begin with prayer this morning. We'll bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for another beautiful day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, as we look at this judgment upon future Babylon, Lord, we, uh, we'd ask that you'd help us to remember that it's the new Jerusalem that stands forever. And the fleeting pleasures of sin in this world will be done away with. And so, Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to think well upon your text and be good students of your word, all for the sake of your name, your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I want to remind you last time, this is last week, we were looking at the end of Revelation chapter 16, where we had finished talking about the seventh bowl. Now, the seventh bowl judgment, remember that we talked about, is a judgment that really opens up, I said, unto eternity. In other words, the seventh bowl judgment is really never going to be over because it culminates in the eternal lake of fire. Now, as we go into Revelation chapter 17, we're in a sort of interlude all the way to Revelation 19.10. And the interlude is designed to give us more information about Babylon. Now, Babylon is really, could be seen, I think, is in two parts. There's a commercial Babylon that we'll be looking at in Revelation 18. But in Revelation 17, the focus is on religious Babylon. It is the headquarters in the 70th week of Daniel of all false religion and idolatry that's opposed to the true teaching from the Word of God. And so this movement of the harlot Babylon, mystery Babylon as it's called, is the religious arm of the beast. So the beast is the political force that's governing the whole world. Religious Babylon is the false religion that gives kind of cohesion to the beast system. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And again, at the end of the day, what Babylon does is it unites all of humanity again to ask the question, did God really say? That they could be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And that's what Babylon's about. It's about going back and challenging God for the rule of the world. So with that, let's turn to an outline here of Revelation 17. First of all, Revelation 17, verses 1 through 6a, you have the discussion about the harlot and the beast. You're going to see that this harlot, that's religious Babylon, is going to be riding the beast, which is the Antichrist. <clears throat> then when we get to Revelation 17, 6b through 14, you have an explanation of the symbolism. And to be fair, the explanation of the symbolism actually extends all the way to verse 18. But that's the primary goal of verses 6b through 14 is to explain the symbolism. That's one thing I love about the book of Revelation. When John gives you symbols that aren't readily understood, he explains what they are. He just simply tells you what they are. So we don't have to guess as to what the symbols mean. The third element of Revelation 17, then, is the certain judgment that will come upon the harlot. One of the interesting things that you see through Revelation is anytime the beast or the harlot, great Babylon, is mentioned, the immediate destruction of either the beast or the harlot is announced almost immediately in the text. And I think that that's God's way of assuring his people that even though there are some scary things that the beast and the harlot will do, it will always be overturned by the power of God. Okay, so let's begin with the text then. We'll look at Revelation 17, 1 through 2, where we see the harlot sitting on many waters. Notice John says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Now, dear ones, notice here in the blue, in the blue, I think John is showing us a deliberate contrast between Babylon, the city of Babylon, and the city of New Jerusalem. Now, here's why I'm saying that. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 21.9. When you turn to Revelation 21.9, you're going to see the identical language that's used that we see here in the blue. But this time... The angel's going to say, come up here, I'm going to show you the new Jerusalem. So there's a deliberate contrast between Babylon and the new Jerusalem. So again, Revelation 21.9, notice the identical language is used by John. 
He says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So notice that same language is used. And again, that's John's way of showing us there's a contrast between Babylon and between the New Jerusalem. And this contrast is, in a sense, what much of the book of Isaiah is about, especially that section that we talked about last week, which is referred to as the little apocalypse. That's usually seen in Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. So, for example, in Isaiah 24.10, just jot that verse down, Isaiah talks about the city of chaos. That's Babylon. And just as Babylon was an enemy of God's people in Isaiah's day, they will be again at the end of time. And it's interesting, in Isaiah 24.10, it's called the city of chaos. Now, the term chaos comes from the Hebrew term tohu. Tohu, use that five times, and you own it. Tohu, not tofu, but tohu. <laughs> now, where do we see tohu elsewhere? Or remember, um, oh, I know, um, Dana, you know uh, where it is. Exactly, in the creation account. Dana's got it, and Ed was raising his hand too. Tohu comes from Genesis 1-2, where the earth was formless and void. Well, the term formless is tohu. So in a sense, you could translate Genesis 1-2, the term tohu, as being chaotic. It was meaningless. It was without content. That's the way the earth was before God worked upon it. Now, I want you to think about that's what the city of Babylon ultimately is. Why? Because it's devoid of God. It's meaningless. It's empty. It has a lot of pomp and circumstance. But at the end of the day, it's heading towards destruction. It's going to be reduced to what the creation was before God intervened. Okay, so that's very interesting. So that then in Isaiah 24.10, the city of Babylon, the city of Tohu, of chaos, is contrasted with Mount Zion, the strong city that will last forever. That's Isaiah chapters 25, verses 6 through 12. And that, I'll, someday I'll show you, there's a chiasm, a giant chiasm, where Mount Zion is the middle portion of a chiasm. And the point that God is showing us in Isaiah is one day this new Jerusalem will last, no matter what it looks like in outward circumstances, no matter how powerful Babylon appears, it's Mount Zion that's going to last forever. So again, John is doing the same thing. He's showing us the great contrast between Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Very exciting. Now, notice he says, come here, the angel. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. So there is going to be a judgment of the great harlot, which is Babylon. That's what this section in Revelation 17 is all about. Now, notice I have here the great harlot in red. The great harlot is synonymous with the religious system of Babylon that is going to be the headquarters of all false religion in the 70th week of Daniel. And what I want you to remember is that in the Old Testament, God not only accused the people of Israel of spiritual adultery, but he also accused the nations of harlotry. So the reason I'm pointing that out is oftentimes when we think of harlotry or adultery, we think, well, that's just the people of God. That's something only Israel could be guilty of. No, God rebuked the nations for that as well. Nahum chapter 3, the Ninevites were rebuked for being harlots. Isaiah chapter 23, Tyre, the nation of Tyre, were rebuked for being a bunch of harlots. The book of Jeremiah, he rebukes the people of Babylon for being the harlot of the world. And so this harlotry, in other words, false religion, idolatry, all that's opposed to revealed, the revealed word of God, is what the harlot is about. And so in the 70th week of Daniel, it's going to reach its culmination where the whole world is going to adopt a false religion that is devoid of the word of God. In fact, turn your Bibles. I want to show you just one reference to Nahum chapter 3, verse 4. I just want to show you, just so you see it yourself, that God does rebuke all the nations for their harlotry. And one day he's going to do it again when he judges Babylon. Nahum chapter 3, verse 4. Nahum, remember, was writing about the destruction that would come to those in Nineveh and Assyria. Nahum 3, 4, it says, All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, 
the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. So here God was rebuking this, this rebellious nation. And so you have to understand that harlotry isn't something that merely Israel could engage in. Now, one thing we have to wrestle with is notice back in our text, it says that this great harlot, the headquarters of all false religion, it sits on many waters. And what's very interesting is Babylon is a city was known as a city that sat on many waters. There was many canals. There was the rivers, the Euphrates, and the Tigris. However, that's not John's point. And the reason we know when he says it sits on many waters that that's not John's point is because he tells us. (laughs) Isn't that great? It's easy to interpret the book of Revelation because he tells you what he means. Later in Revelation 7.15, he gives us the interpretation of the many waters. It says, and he said to me, this would be the angel speaking to John. This is Revelation 17, 15. I'm saying that for the recorder. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So, dear ones, just as the beast has all of the nations give allegiance to him, there's also a false religious component which is headquartered in Babylon. And the beast is going to use Babylon at least until sometime in the last part of the 70th week of Daniel in the Great Tribulation period where the harlot will be devoured because the beast himself will want to receive all glory, honor, and worship himself. But the beast is going to be initially the component used, excuse me, I say the beast, the harlot is going to be used by the beast as the religious component for worldwide rebellion against God. So that's what it means. The many waters are the many nations. And I want you to notice right after that, then in verse 2, who is it that's deceived by what Babylon does, the great harlot? Well, it's everyone who is unregenerate. Notice it says the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality with her. The kings of the earth, of course, would be the leadership. But then it also says it's those who dwell on the earth. They were also made drunk with the wine of her immorality. That's everyone. It's the leadership and it's the masses. But notice that phrase, those who dwell on the earth. I'm not going to labor this much more because I've said this so many times. But that phrase occurs eight times in the book of Revelation. I believe we're going to see it one more time only, if I recall the count correctly, in Revelation 17.8. But why is that phrase significant? Those who dwell upon the earth. Because it's strictly speaking of the unregenerate, of unbelievers. That's what it's referring to. After all, aren't they the ones who are made drunk with her immorality? That's not true of those who come to faith in Christ in the 70th week of Daniel. They're martyred. They stand firm in the doctrines of Christ. So this phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, is always used of unbelievers in the book of Revelation. Now, why am I laboring that one more time? Because one of the most abused passages or misunderstood passages in the entire Bible, in my opinion, is Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10, Jesus is giving a promise not just to the church of Philadelphia, for he says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. It's for every Christian for all time. And he says, because you've been faithful to keep my word, the term keep, tereo, means to guard, I will keep you, tereo, I, I will guard you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world, stop there. It's not just a local judgment. It's a worldwide judgment. And it's known. It's the hour. This is the day of the Lord. I'll keep you from the day of the Lord, he's saying, that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. What's the design of the wrath of God that comes in the 70th week of Daniel? It's not designed for believers, for their purging. It's specifically for those who dwell upon the earth. And time and time again, throughout the book of Revelation, no less than eight times, does John show us that those who dwell upon the earth are exclusively unbelievers. That's who they are. And so that's what the wrath of God is going to be poured out on. I've also done a lot of work in the preposition in Revelation 3.10, the preposition act from means that they will be guarded from on the outside of the coming trial. Well, if you're guarded on the outside of the time period of the trial that comes upon the whole world, you can't be there. What if a math teacher said, I'm going to, because you've done so well, if you get 100% on all your quizzes throughout the year, 
I will keep you from getting the test at the end of the year. Well, would you think that you'd still have to take the test and go through it? But he's just going to guard you through it. And no matter what grade you get, you're going to be protected. You see, that's what the post-tribulationists believe about the tribulation. They believe that the church will go through it, but God will just protect all of the saints through it. Well, that's a strange understanding of kept from. If you're kept from the test at the end of the year, you're not going to go through it. And that's the great promise. The test that comes upon the whole world is designed for those who dwell upon the earth. And again, I'm pointing this out here because clearly those who dwell upon the earth who are engaged with the harlot, they're not believers. And every time you see that phrase, when you read the book of Revelation yourself, look for that phrase, and every time you'll say, oh, of course, that's only something the unregenerate do. So those who are going to be deceived by the great harlot is everyone who's unregenerate, both the leadership and also all of the masses, all those who don't believe in Christ. Yes, Eric. Yeah, just to actually, maybe I'm, I'm belaboring this, but it's an important enough thing. So at this point, you know, the saints... The church has been raptured, and and you know your understanding of uh, Revelation three ten is is absolutely perfect in my opinion. Not that that matters, but we got John fourteen and the, you know the all, we've got a whole bunch of other evidence. Yes, amen. Um, but then the people who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, they will have been martyred. Amen. Many of right? them. Right. Yes. Okay. That was absolutely. My question. You're okay. right. So that doesn't mean there isn't going to be a church in the seventieth week. There will be. There will be people who do come to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's very apparent. But the great promise for those who believe prior to the coming of this wrath is that they will be kept from it. Absolutely. Yep. Well said. Another passage that should always come to our mind is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. You've not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason that passage in particular is relevant is because the, the subject matter of 1 Thessalonians 5 is the day of the Lord. He said, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Well, then immediately he says, well, you've not been destined to wrath. Well, when does the wrath come? At the day of the Lord. See, when I used to read that years and years ago when I was a brand new Christian, I would just say, oh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we have not been destined to wrath. We're not going to go to hell. But it's a little bit more specific than that. It's actually referring to the wrath that comes at the day of the Lord. That's the immediate context. Certainly, hell is part of that. The, The seventh bowl, part of the day of the Lord opens up to that. But it's more specific. We're going to be exempt from the wrath that comes at the entire broad day of the Lord. Absolutely. Yep. That's a promise. And by the way, you know, Bob, for so many years, has been so good at teaching us to say we have to believe all the promises of God. And to me, this has been an abused promise. Is it, are we promised exemption from God's wrath or not? Well, we have been, and therefore we ought to believe it. That's, that's for sure. Okay. Now, I want to come back to this idea of harlotry. And I want to talk about this harlotry idea because I want to show you that harlotry does not necessarily imply that the future apostasy is only limited to the church, whether the seen church or the unseen. But I would say that the harlotry is strictly, not strictly, but has to do primarily with just the masses, the unregenerate. Now, here's why I say that. There's an interesting term for adultery. It's moikeia. And it's a more restricted term than that's used here in Revelation. It's a term that often has to do with a previous relationship or marriage. In other words, you can only commit adultery for some, with someone that you've, you basically are cheating on your spouse, right? Well, the reason I point this out is the term that's used for the harlot, porne, is a wider term representing false religion in general. In other words, there doesn't have to be a prior relationship. Do the unregenerate masses in the 70th week of Daniel have any prior relationship with the God of Israel? Were they in covenant with him? Were they believers who seemingly had a confession in Jesus Christ but then fell away? No, that's not the point of the harlot. The point is in the 70th week of Daniel, things become so bad. People don't know who the God of Israel is. The masses are going to rebel both politically and spiritually against God. And I think that helps us understand what the great apostasy really is that we read about, for example, in 2 Thessalonians. I want to spend a little time in 2 Thessalonians because this harlot is what the great apostasy is about, him and the harlot and also the beast. So let's turn our Bibles real quick to 2 Thessalonians 2. You can see it up on the screen. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3. Now, what I want to show you is that this harlotry that I have highlighted in red 
is, excuse me, the apostasy is related to the harlot. The idea that the world is going to turn to both the beast, but also the false religious system. That's the kind of revolt. Now remember in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3, you have those at Thessalonica who are so convinced by teachers that were speaking for Paul, but they were false teachers. They were so convinced, these at Thessalonica, that they were living in the day of the Lord that they thought they had missed the coming of the Lord. Why? Well, because they're undergoing such severe persecution. And so because the persecution was so severe, false teachers are saying, you must be living during the day of the Lord. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to say, no, you can't be living during the day of the Lord because the first thing within the day of the Lord is the apostasy followed by the man of lawlessness being revealed. Have you seen those things? No. Then you cannot be in the day of the Lord and therefore missed the coming of the Lord. See, it wouldn't do any good for Paul to say, well, no, you couldn't have missed the coming of the Lord because you didn't miss the coming of the Lord. It's a tautology. If my little boy says, why is the sky blue? And I say to him, it's because it looks blue. Have I added anything to the content of the conversation? No, it's a tautology. That's why Paul has to answer the way he does. He can't simply say, no, you didn't miss the coming of the Lord because you didn't miss the coming of the Lord. It doesn't help. So he says, no, if the Lord came, you would have seen within the day of the Lord, if you're living in it, the first things in it. So that's what he's doing here. So listen to what he says. He doesn't want them, he says, to be quickly shaken. He says, from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, the first thing I want to address again in this text is notice in verse 3, I have some words italicized. I'm going to underline them too. Notice it seems to be that there's something that must occur prior to the day of the Lord. So, aha, a lot of people say there must be a precursor prior to to the day of the Lord. But notice that's italicized. It's called the apodosis. Remember in any if-then statement, you have a apodosis, if this, apodosis, then that. Well, here, the apodosis is thrown forward, and the reason it's italicized is it must be supplied by our English translator. Now, the English translator must deal with the logic of the previous verse. Now, here's what I'm claiming. I would not render it, it will not come, Because notice the last part of verse 2, their concern was that the day of the Lord had already come. In fact, notice the verb there in the box, has come. It comes from the perfect tense form of anastomy. It sounds like histamine. Always makes me kind of sneezy when I say it. (laughs) Anastomy, it's anastaken. It's in the perfect tense. What's interesting is every time anastaken, the perfect tense is used, it is referring to something that is present. Now, this is an okay translation. Has come, has that idea. It's here. But if you like to write in your Bible, I would write down present. Now, here's why. Let me show you all six usages of this term because I want to just nail this down right here and now. Let's look at each instance. Let's look at how Enestaken is used in Romans 8.38. It's used there. Please turn your Bibles to Romans 8.38. Romans 8.38. We just studied this passage, what was it, a couple weeks ago, right? This is where Paul is talking about nothing in creation can separate us from the promises of God, the love of Christ. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Notice the phrase, nor things present. That's the perfect tense verb, and it's taken. Okay, that's what it is. It's right there. Things present. Okay, now notice it's not things that are impending or things that will be coming. It's nor things present. Because right after that, then he says the things to come. There's a contrast. Nothing now nor anything to come will ever be able to separate you from the love of Christ. So notice the proper translation is present. Does everyone see that? Now, turn your Bibles again. Let me show you again another usage of NST. You can turn... To 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 22. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 22. We'll look at all six usages, and we'll boil this down to say, has come is best 
rendered present. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 22, it says, So then let no one boast in man, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. Again, the perfect form of anistomy is used and is taken things present. Does everyone see that? Okay, go to 1 Corinthians 7.26. Just go ahead. Four chapters. <clears throat> Notice here, Paul, 1 Corinthians 7.26 says, I think then that this is a good in view, talking about people remaining single, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Does everyone see verse 26? It's the present distress. What distress? Well, one of the distresses that the Corinthians were going through is that people were actually dying because of their abuse of the day of the Lord. That's one thing that Gordon Fee points out, that this distress was certainly present with that congregation then. Okay? Now, fast forward to Galatians 1.4. I just want you to see the idea of present. Galatians 1.4. I'll show you another usage. Galatians 1.4, Paul talking about Christ, he says, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. It's not the impending future age. It's not the coming future age. But he rescues us from what? This present age. Okay, so time and time again, it's rendered present. Again, the perfect form of anistomy. One more, Hebrews 9, 9, and then I'll quit laboring this point but if we don't do it here where are we going to do it right you're probably not going to look up all six usages of the perfect form of anistomy on your own i wouldn't imagine it's probably not the the type of devotions that most people are doing in their home yeah yeah so here's hebrews 9 9 now this is regarding the veil in the tabernacle which is part of the old mosaic system which is being done away with which was done away with with christ Hebrews 9.9, it says, talking about this, he says it's a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Notice again, it's not the impending time, it's the present time. So let me stop there. Present, 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 all six usages. So let's put that in the box once. Now, has come as a fine translation, but it literally is, they thought that the day of the Lord was present. That's what they thought. They thought they were living in it. So now you have to supply the apodosis. Why are we adding a future referent? It will not come. The better apodosis would be it is not present. Unless what? The apostasy comes first. The first thing within the day of the Lord is the apostasy, followed then by the man of lawlessness. Now, the reason I'm talking about this apostasy and I'm linking it to the harlot is because what you have to understand is when the apostasy comes, it is a departure and a revolt against God, both politically in the rule of the beast, but also spiritually in the reign of the harlot. It's both and. Now, some will try to claim that the apostasy here is a reference to the rapture itself because the term can just simply mean departure. I think that that's a weak weak view. Um, We don't have to hold to that in order to believe in the pre-trib rapture. I think that the apostasy here is certainly, and notice he has the definite article. I think perhaps he has the definite article because this is something that was well known to them, that they had been taught on, that there's going to be a worldwide rebellion where in a sense all allegiance goes back to Babylon and there's rejection against God. And therefore you have the man of lawlessness who's going to be the head of it, who's therefore revealed. Now when does that begin? Well, isn't it interesting in Revelation 6 you begin more than likely with the false Christ. Remember, there are many that come along in the beginning with the Antichrist. So right away in Revelation chapter 6, at the inception of Daniel's 70th week, you have the revelation of the man of lawlessness implying that the world had given allegiance to him. Okay? So the reason I'm relating this to our section today, 2 Thessalonians 2, is this apostasy, again, is both spiritual and political. Yes, Lonnie. Well, I, I, I can see apostasy happening now, so how is that placed in the end time timeline? Yeah, well said, Lonnie. There's always been apostasy throughout the ages. And apostasy, of course, is where someone departs from the faith. 
They seemingly had a profession, but they never had possession. But just think about it this way. Throughout the church age, there are also going to be earthquakes. We have earthquakes now. So it's very easy to open our Bible to the Olivet Discourse, which is talking about events within the 70th week, and say, aha, we have earthquakes now. That's now. And there are many fine people who will hold to that view. However, the earthquake that we are going to see, for example, the seventh bowl, is unlike any earthquake that's ever occurred. The wars and rumors of wars that Jesus talks about, certainly we've had wars throughout the history of man, but the wars in the 70th week of Daniel are so substantial and so horrific that you end up losing a quarter of the earth's population. So do you see what I'm getting at? The apostasy is going to be a worldwide rebellion where, yeah, and I'm sorry, Bob wants to comment on that. Yeah. In 1 John, it's clear that oh, yeah. the present situation, everyone who's not in Christ is under lawlessness. Yes. Okay. And Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. So we have lawlessness now, yeah. but we don't have the man. Amen. We, ju- we have Antichrist, but we don't have the fullness of what that's going to look like. Yes. And I'm of the opinion that what's happening will be totally different than it has been since way back in Genesis. Yeah, the very things good. are going to totally change. So lawlessness is what it looks like to not serve God on his terms. Yeah. But after the rapture, the man of lawlessness, lawlessness is revealed and it's worse than it's ever been. Yeah, amen. You know, Bob, you would um, also comment on this if you feel like it. Um, you've mentioned so many times part of a Christian worldview is a world in which God has created boundaries and borders yeah. and instituted governing authorities. Well, those governing authorities, plural, are used to restrain evil, but those are all done away with, aren't they? We're down to one. Yes, if you go back to Genesis, you'll find out what happened there shows the reversal of it at the end. Exactly. See, after Babel, what did God do? He, he confused their languages, yeah, them scattered off. them, and then you have the table of nations. Yes. And God draws out the boundaries, says in Deuteronomy 28, I believe, okay, that all these nations are under the sons of God, but Israel is supposed to be under God, right? Right, right. Okay. Well, then eventually Israel rebels and thrown under the sons of God, too. Yes. The sons of God are the wicked beings. Now, in Acts 17, Paul describes the way things are now. God draws out the boundaries of the nations. He raises up the rulers. He ordains civil authorities. And the fact we have nations with civil rulers and some degree of civil law some much worse than others. Right. The chaos is horrible when it happens. Yeah. And it does now and again. That is restraining. Okay. During Daniel's 70th week, the idea is that that restraint is removed. Yeah. The boundaries of the nations are removed. And everybody gets back to their battle that they right. wanted to start with. Right. And the man of lawlessness is going to be a a horrific, abusive, horrible tyrant. Right. And he'll have supernatural powers that will make his deception all the more powerful and irresistible unless you come to Christ and are willing to be martyred. Also, in Revelation 9... God is going to let loose the beings that have been locked up that caused the original problem. Mm, right. And they're going to be back on the earth. I don't think we want to be there for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's really, really bad. Yeah. And I preached on it. I think I wrote an article on this. The irony is, I think it's from, am I right about Revelation 9? I got the right yeah. chapter. Yeah. So all this horrible stuff, and people are stung, and they, it's painful, it's yeah. awful, it's miserable. And what does it say later in the chapter? And they did not 
repent. Yeah. Wow. The okay. human race lusts for interaction with the world of the spirits. Hmm. They lust for it so much, they'll do anything to try to get it. Amen. Every kind of occult things. Christians lust for it in a wicked way. And that's why the apostasy. Many people are not satisfied. I'm going to preach on this today to have access to the throne of God, uh. throne of grace, and know God hears us. They are not satisfied because it's not sufficient to fulfill their lust for interacting with the spirits. Right. They want a two-way. Yeah. It's not enough God hear me. I want to hear yeah. from the world of the spirits. Right. And so they buy books like Jesus Calling, and they, oh, see, now we've got more. Hmm. They go into Christian occultism so they can hear the spirits. And they're apostate. They're wicked. They're, they're, they're under God's judgment. They're not really of us. Yeah. Imagine what happens in Daniel's 70th week when they don't even have to learn a technique. Right. They don't have to learn to silence the mind. They don't have to buy somebody's book who's better at talking to the spirits. They'll be right there. Right. Right there, real. And it's perverse. It's called harlotry. Wow. So uh, I don't know. I don't want to. I'm going to preach on that. So, but, excuse me. I saw a, a doctor about voices, and I was supposed to warm up. <laughs> That's good. Well, you know, Bob made an astute point once, too, when we were on the radio. And this is the way I've always thought of it. It's a very good analogy. Think of this. He said, you know, when it comes to the apostasy and you lose the restraint of many civil governments and you only have one government, think of the picture of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler tries to create this thousand-year Reich. Well, what if there was all allegiance given to him? What if there was no storming of Normandy, nor, there, nor was there a Russian front? The English weren't opposed. The po no, let's say the whole world had given him allegiance. Well, he'd be rather successful in his evil plot, wouldn't he? Well, that's what the 70th week of Daniel is about. You're not going to have any fighting back. There isn't going to be anybody to storm the beaches, so as it were, to restrain this lawless one. Now, that's not to say that there won't be some skirmishes, but by and large, the whole world will end up giving him allegiance. Now, he'll be killed, but he'll also be raised up in a pseudo-resurrection, and that'll give people even more impetus to want to follow the beast. And therefore, Yeah, I'm sorry, Dana. Well, along with what you were saying, in, in Revelation 13, one of the things that they talk about, the beast, they say... Um, Who can wage war? In Revelation 13... Um, 13.4, who is like the, under the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Exactly. Who can wage war against him? That's right. Just think if everyone said that about Adolf Hitler, we'd have a different, different present that we're living in right now. Yeah, thank you. Great reference. Yeah, Adam. Um, and just regarding that, if you actually look through all of the scriptures, yeah. uh, we see a whole lot of uh, rulers under uh, demonic deception and possession. I mean, in Ephesians, Paul talks about uh, being under the, uh, you were of the sons of disobedience, uh, under the, uh, the ruler of the air and the powers. You see that God gives Saul over uh, after he takes away his spirit. He comes under a demonic spirit. Yeah. Uh, you see in Ezekiel the apostasy of Israel's uh, leadership. Uh, all of the, uh, I mean, the, the king, uh, the priests, uh, their prophets, their judges, the elders, uh, all worshiping false gods. And Ezekiel sees them... Uh, filled with and worshiping demonic beings. Right. Uh, and so you, you see that throughout all of Scripture. That wasn't just back in Genesis before the flood. Right. Uh, but right now, I, uh, Satan is the, the god of this uh, age and, and world. That's uh, right. But in Revelation, as you're saying, uh, you see then uh, now it's given to uh, to one ruler uh, under, under Satan. Kind of, kind of the promise that... Uh, the devil made to Jesus, uh, saying, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms for uh, they've been given right. to me and they're mine to give. Oh, great uh, connection, so, Adam, yeah. And then just regarding Thessalonians, yeah, uh, you were talking about as a, sort of a hypothetical syllogism, but as Paul writes it, yeah. uh, it's, it's not really quite that. 
he can put the sort of the conditional situation, the yeah. hypothetical situation before it, right. in which it'd be kind of a, a frame that if this, then this main point follows. But by saying that, uh, talking about, let's see, the, uh, not, not to be uh, disturbed and such from, yeah. from all of this, uh, because then he says, uh, because uh, if, if, not, if the apostasy uh, has not or uh, is not present yet, uh, it then qualifies what comes before. And so right. it's, not ex it's not quite exactly true that they're deceived of all these things or that they're, I mean, that they're in this situation because he then, he then qualifies it with this, uh, with this statement. So it's kind of like a, a sub-point to the, to the main point. Uh, yeah, well said. For, the, for them to not be uh, taken by this. And even if I saw some of the other uses, I'd have to look. Yeah, uh, there are Sometimes you have irregular verbs, yeah. but some of the other uses were participles, and so they might not necessarily interact quite the same way. But even yeah. if it was, uh, even if it was uh, more along the lines of has come, the yeah. idea would be they're in this situation, so obviously past he has come, uh, now present relevance, he's here. Uh, so exactly. this, this situation's present. So. Well said. In fact, there are two occurrences where the same conditional language is used, and um, they're both in the Gospels. One has to do with um, Satan's house being plundered. And remember, it talks about a strong man. His house cannot be plundered unless he is first bound, and then he can be plundered. Well, that binding of the strong man isn't something that's apart from the breaking and entering. It's part and parcel to it. It's the first event within it. The same thing occurs with I think it's in John 7, if I recall, where there's allegations made against Jesus. And even a Pharisee stands and says, doesn't our law require that he first be heard? Well, the part of the judicial process isn't, first of all, there's a hearing, and then the judicial process begins. But the hearing is the first thing within the judicial process. Now, the reason why both of those are significant is they both give credence to the idea that the apostasy isn't something that occurs prior to the day of the Lord, but in fact, it's the first thing within it. And those are direct parallels from the Gospels where the same language, I used the function and logos where you can actually copy the Greek text and you just look for similar usages. And those similar phrases are used and each time you have the event is the first thing within the time period rather than preceding it, which would indicate that the apostasy is part of the day of the Lord, not preceding the day of the Lord. So, yeah, very good. Yeah, thank you. Well, and I was thinking, um, is it Matthew that talks about that they will kill you thinking they're doing God's will, something to that yes, effect? Yes. And so <laughs> when I think about that, and you had referenced Hitler as an example, but, you know, how much death would it have taken to satisfy his, con his desire for control and power? Yeah. And today, you know, we have all this... Um, you know, sustainable development, we've got environmentalism, and everybody, I mean, even churches, sadly, thinking that the greatest sin is pollution or whatever, right. you know, and, right. you know, so their mindset, they really think in their heart it's a good thing, but they're deceived because, you know, they're, you know, I mean, you can just see how this isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be the big explosion of suddenly it's horrible incrementally, slowly it comes, yeah. and we just get so lulled into thinking this is a good thing. Well said, Luann. Much of the unregenerate world fights false evils. I remember being at Bethel Seminary. They were all putting down all the soldiers and Marines who were fighting against these terrorists who like to actually do real evil. Well, then they had Erwin McManus, who Bob has probably written against at times. He was part of the emerging church. Erwin McManus called himself, what was he, a spiritual warrior. And I asked the question, I said, well, I know what the soldiers are fighting. Well, or he was a mystical warrior, that's what he was. And I just asked the question, well, what is he fighting? Who is he fighting? You see, what's interesting is the unregenerate world comes up with false evils to fight. There was an old saying after World War II, we learned that we had to fight evil as the Western world, Americans, the Brits, etc. But many of the unregenerate in Germany learned that fighting was evil. So the unregenerate world and the Marxists, etc., they come up with false evils that aren't really evil. If you burn carbon uh, to, in order to supply uh, gas for your car or food for your family, you're doing evil in their sight. But God has never declared it to be evil. All the while, they're allowing the murder of the innocent children. But that's fine. They won't fight against that. In fact, if you fight against it, you're evil. 
So that is what part of the unregenerate world under Satan is they fight fake evils that God calls fine and good, and the true evil they won't fight. And that's going to be on steroids in the 70th week of Daniel. Absolutely. Yep, well said. So with that, I'm sorry, we're having such a great discussion. Anybody else? I'll move to the next slide. Um, I don't even remember what we were talking about. <laughs> Somebody tell me. What we're, uh, but it was, what I was trying to relate, though, just before we go off of this, again, is the great apostasy is part and parcel with giving allegiance to both the harlot and the beast. That's what I was trying to drive at. Okay, now, let's get back to Babylon the Great here. Verses 3 through 5, Revelation 17. I'm talking about the angel again. It says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, the first thing I want you to see in this text is that John is claiming that he was carried away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now, notice the spirit here in the NASB version is capitalized. There's also another possibility, not that it's being done by the spirit, but the idea is that it's a small s on spirit, and the reference is to John's spirit. The implication would be he didn't actually bodily leave Patmos, but he's seeing a vision. Okay, so that's another possibility. Um, the other possibilities you could perhaps render this, and he carried me away by the Spirit into a wilderness. Therefore, the Holy Spirit would be the one who is responsible for this revelation. Either way, the big picture is we have to realize John doesn't leave Patmos. He's not claiming that. He's claiming some sort of revelation, obviously supernatural, given to him by God. Right Now, notice he also says he saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. But uh, I'm sorry, before he said that, though, notice he's carried away where? He's carried away into the wilderness. Now, I wanted to mention this. I think that this wilderness idea may be significant. We saw the reference to the wilderness earlier in the book of Revelation where Israel was hidden, remember, in Revelation 12, and protected in the wilderness from the onslaught of the beast. However, here, I don't think that John is referring to that because it's kind of apples and oranges. That was Israel, this is Babylon. I think more than likely, John has a reference in Isaiah in his mind. And the reference was an oracle that was against Babylon, and the judgment would come from the wilderness, as it were. In fact, let me just show you the passage. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 29, verses 3 through 9. Excuse me. Isaiah 21, verses 1 through 3. And for the sake of time, I'll also add verse 9 on there. But I'll show you some of the references here. Now, this may have been in John's mind in connecting us back to this text because, again, you have a similar judgment upon Babylon. Now, before I read this text to you, remember there was actually four different judgments upon Babylon. There was one in 710 B.C. by Sargon II. There was one in 702 B.C. by Sennacherib followed by another one in 689 by Sennacherib. Then there was one, I believe, in 648 by Ashurbanipal. Okay, so there's four judgments upon the uh, nation of Babylon. So realize it's not just the 539 B.C. judgment. I should say five because I didn't include that. The 539 B.C. judgment by the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, so the reason I'm pointing this out is I think that this text should be located around the 689 judgment, and I'll show you reasons why where you had Sennacherib use foreign nations, like obviously Assyria was being used. Sennacherib is using Syria, but also perhaps other nations aligned with him to absolutely sack Babylon. And so Babylon would fall. So that's the setting here. So let's read it. Isaiah 21, 1 through 3. It says, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Now stop there for just a moment. A good case could be made, I think, that concerning the wilderness of the sea, that may be a reference right there to Babylon. Uh, the wilderness of the sea, it was noted that this was often used or could be used with a reference to Babylon itself. Um, that was Erlinson was a scholar who pointed that out. But I'm not, I'm not clear on that, whether it is a reference to that or not. But notice the, the point. He says, as windstorms in the Negev sweep on, 
It comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. So now Isaiah's painting a very bleak picture of judgment. He says, a harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam, lay siege, media. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. Now stop there. Notice the term Elam. Elam ceased to exist really as a power after 639 BC. They later become the Persians. But I think this is a real reference to the kingdom of Elam. So what that says then is this passage in Isaiah 21 must be dated prior to that. So that's why I think more than likely it's referring to the 689 destruction that happened to Babylon. Notice he keeps going. He says, for this reason, verse 3, my loins are full of anguish, pains. In the Septuagint, there's Odin, the reference that we have to the future day of the Lord. Odin, labor pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. Now, fast forward. I'm sorry, we don't have time, but verse 9. Everyone fast forward to verse 9. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the image of her gods are shattered on the ground. Now, the reason Isaiah wrote this in his day is Hezekiah, do you remember in Isaiah 39, Hezekiah showed the storehouse of wares in the temple to the Babylonians? Because he was going to trust in an alliance with Babylon in protection against Assyria. Well, Isaiah is saying, why in the world would you do that? Babylon's going to be thrown down. In the same way, in the book of Revelation, I think John is perhaps borrowing this, saying, yes, there's also going to be another judgment that comes. Fallen, fallen will be Babylon. And Babylon itself, even though it seems glorious, will be, in fact, reduced to nothing but a wilderness. Just like the city of chaos that Babylon is depicted to be. Remember Tohu? Empty and void. As, as Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 24.10. So perhaps that's the illusion that John is bringing us to. I can't be certain, but that perhaps is the wilderness or the reason why the wilderness is being brought up here. Look at the connection with fallen Babylon. Now, the other thing I want to point out is here, this woman is sitting on a scarlet beast. And the beast, of course, is none other than the Antichrist that was referred to back in Revelation chapter 13. You're going to see him again in Revelation 19 when he's thrown into the abyss at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, the beast is in scarlet, but then the woman is depicted as being clothed with purple. And one of the interesting things that kind of popped in my mind is I remember reading the gospel accounts for many years, and I remember that idea of Jesus being clothed in both scarlet and purple is the description. Now, I don't know if John is making anything of that, but it's interesting to note that Jesus, sometimes his clothing was described as being scarlet, and sometimes it was described as being purple. Remember, that's the, what the soldiers placed upon him when they were mocking him. Was it an interesting now... In the pseudo-Christ system, you have the same colors reappear. It's also interesting to know that scarlet is often seen as the picture of sin. I think of Isaiah 118. Remember, although your sins be like scarlet, they may be white as snow. Remember that? We sing the song, white as snow. So scarlet was often a symbol of, of course, sin. And we have um, purple often a symbol of royalty. Okay, now, how that plays out with this vision is perhaps, again, we see the one who is arrayed in scarlet is ultimately the sinful one. We're not exactly sure why he has them colored this way, and he doesn't state it, so we're just giving some hypothetical suggestions. But notice here, we have the scarlet beast has seven heads and ten horns. Does everyone see that? That is the beast that the harlot is sitting upon. Now, I want you to remember all the way back to Revelation chapter 12, you had Satan himself was depicted as having seven heads and ten horns. Well, then in the very next chapter, in chapter 13, the beast who comes up out of the sea, representing the abyss, who is going to be given the power of Satan, also has the seven heads and the ten horns. Well, now the beast is depicted as sitting upon, excuse me, the harlot is depicted as sitting upon this beast. 
Does that follow? So my point is in seeing that progression, you see that the power ultimately comes from whom? Satan. He's the original one that had the seven heads and the ten horns. Also notice here where it says that she is adorned in gold and precious stones and pearls. It says, having in her hand the gold cup full of abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. What's very interesting is prostitutes often use their allure, their attractiveness, their jingle to allure the unsuspecting. And it looks so good, but it leads ultimately to death. In the same way, the spiritual harlot, spiritually false religion, is what we're referring to here. It looks really good to much of the unregenerate, but at the end it leads to death. That's what it's going to lead to. The gold and precious stones of the harlot here are contrasted with the beauty of the new Jerusalem, the bride, later on. So you have here the gaudiness and the beauty of the harlot, but the new Jerusalem, the bride. So think of the distinction. You have a harlot and the bride. The harlot is religious Babylon. The bride is new Jerusalem. And the splendor of the bride, the new Jerusalem, is going to far outweigh and transcend anything that the harlot has to offer. That's one of the pictures that John wants us to see, that waiting and persevering in the Lord and waiting for the new Jerusalem is always worth it. That's the message in Isaiah. Live for the strong city, the city of Zion, the city that God establishes by his grace and not for the fleeting pleasures associated with Babylon, the city of chaos that's going to be thrown down. And I think these contrasts there are inherent in the book of Revelation as well. I'm sorry, I saw a hand. Uh, Lonnie. Yeah. Um, so you say the harlot is Babylon? Yes. Because I was wondering, you know, uh, uh, yeah, Dave Hunt said it was a Catholic church. What do you... Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> no? Okay. Um, in fact, when you look to verse 18, if you fast forward to Revelation 17, 18, yeah. he tells you further the mystery, and I was going to get to that as well. But in fact, oh, I have it in my notes here. Revelation 17, 18. The, one, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, that's, that's Babylon. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, uh, Adam. Uh, well, I was just going to add quickly, uh, yeah. seeing the, the purple there in, in scarlet, uh, purple, the, the dye was very expensive and the uh, color of uh, royalty and extravagance. So you see the, like the rich man wearing it every single day in and out as he's having his uh, feasts and celebrations. Mm. And so uh, to uh, deck yourself out in, in purple uh, is to be of royalty. And so when the soldiers put a, a quote-unquote purple, purple cloak, whether it's faded or whatever, uh, on him, uh, they're presenting him as, oh, look at this king, you know, wearing, wearing a crown of thorns and a scepter yeah. in his hand and a purple cloak on, on his back. And so it's all part of their, their ridicule. But ironically, he really is the king. Well said, well said. Sadly, Adam, it's also the color of the Vikings, <laughs> which has nothing to do with royalty. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, cheaper to get. Yeah. Levine. I just cannot get it out of my head. That to me, this is a Roman Catholic church. Oh. I mean, I, just, I can't see beyond that. I mean, it says, a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. Well, what's more blasphemous than to claim you are God on earth, that you have control over all these people, and they are to listen to you as though you are God. You're taking God's authority upon yourself they call mary the mother of god absolutely um the scarlet and purple that's the colors of the cardinals and the bishops and so forth uh, they're doing everything they can to bring the world under them yeah. always have so yeah. i i can't get my head beyond that somehow the roman catholic church is yeah thanks levin they want to be the one world religion. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, Bob, you want to? Well, I would answer by saying you have the already not yet going. Yeah, amen. Just like with lawlessness. What is so absurd and horrific about Rome is they don't understand anything 
that Eric's teaching. Yeah. Okay. So they imbibe of the Antichrist spirit and ally themselves with this lawlessness, and they're just feeding in to the whole false system. But please remember that during Daniel's 70th week, it all changes. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't mean Rome now is it. And it doesn't mean that during the tribulation, everybody will be Roman Catholic. Hmm. We, we, it doesn't imply that. Yeah, well But said. it does imply how biblically illiterate they are that they purposely set up a system that looks more like Babylon than Jerusalem. Exactly. It just shows that they don't know. Yeah. I was just looking at a verse. I can't remember. It's in what sermon I'm going to preach because I'm way ahead. But somewhere, Jesus mentions Holy Father about God in heaven. Yeah. How blasphemous for a man on the earth to take the title Holy Father. They blaspheme God, and they don't even know they're doing it. Right. And they keep people from the gospel. So I talk to more people who are so concerned about their relatives who have been Catholic, and they don't, as they get older and life gets shorter, they don't even know they need Christ. Yeah. They're insulating people against the gospel. So by Eric pointing out, the difference of exactly what will happen during Daniel's 70th week. We're not saying the Rome's not so bad. It is. But Rome itself isn't enough to fulfill all of this. Amen. Well said. And Very uh, good. Bob, Bob yeah. what you're saying, just to summarize, many antichrists have gone into the world. Yes. yes. Uh, there, there's going to be one at the end, but uh, the Pope declares to be uh, another Christ, an, an altar Christus. Uh, well as to all of their priests and such, and so it's part of the it's part of the antichrist well, demonic deception. Well said, Adam. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I don't want to ever stand up for the Catholic Church, and because uh, obviously they're part of the antichrist system now. Um, it is blasphemous what they do. However, let's just remind ourselves what happened in the 70th week. What I'm claiming is the 70th week of Daniel is unique, so we can't place the things happening here in church history. Much of the reformers did. So let's just review a few things. One is remember there's going to be a loss of a third of mankind. We're going to have a release of the demonic. The last earthquake was so great that you had islands. We had great topographical changes. We had 130-pound hailstones falling. These are things that are unique that have never occurred in history. So if we try to say, well, this is just the Roman Catholic Church in history, I think we're doing violence to the text. Again, the Roman Catholic Church is evil. What they teach is vile. It's blasphemous. And it is lining up with this system at the end, but it's not the system. It's, it, so Babylon is Babylon. It's going to be along the Euphrates, I believe. That's why we have the reference to the Euphrates. And what's more is notice the seven heads. I'll talk about more of this next time. But a lot of times you have reformers who try to shoehorn in seven different emperors of Rome. The problem with that view would be if you use, like, let's say you believe the view that Revelation was written during the reign of Nero. Well, now you have too few emperors to shoehorn in to make the seven heads be the seven emperors. If it was written during the reign of Domitian, which I believe it was, Irenaeus claims it was, I think that's um, good testimony. Uh, I think it was written around 95 AD. Well, Domitian, there would be too many emperors. So I'm going to show you a better view than that. So the point is, is a lot of times what happened with the reformers, they try to shoehorn the emperors into the seven heads. It doesn't work. You have to leave out emperors or you have to add some. Um, It doesn't work. So what I'm going to show you is a better view than that. And what is being depicted here is that Babylon just represents all the enemies of God that have gone before it to usurp. So it's going to be the seven different kingdoms that have come about that have faced off against Israel. Six of them have basically come. Then one will come and then be destroyed, which is, uh, which is the Antichrist. Then he's resurrected. He becomes actually an eighth kingdom. So we'll talk about that as we go. But a lot of these things just don't fit Rome. Um, we talked about it last time, I think, in um, also Revelation 14, where we talk about the different hills. And Babylon is just simply Babylon. So even though there is an affinity between false Christ for all time, the false Christ that's coming, the false prophet and this harlot, is going to be unique 
uh, uniquely evil in the 70th week of Daniel. So thank you for your summary. I guess we're out of time. Yeah, thank you. Okay, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we look at all these things, we can be absolutely assured that through faith in Christ, we will be absolutely spared from the future wrath to come. We also thank you, Lord, that you're a God of justice, that you do not allow your holy name to be sullied forever, and that you are a great and mighty warrior who will come and fight for your people, that you will establish a kingdom that will be without end, that you will throw down Babylon, the city of chaos, and establish Jerusalem forevermore. We thank you for these great promises in Jesus' name. Amen.